Great. Uh, on a means of introduction, just very briefly, my name's George Ristaw. I'm the managing broker at Weikert Realtors All Pro. Uh, the name of our show is uh, Ask the Managing Broker and is the managing broker of, uh, of our uh, company. Uh, we're uh, reaching out to our own agents today and also any of our other uh, individuals that are uh, following us, uh, trying to provide some good information. Uh, one disclaimer up front, if you're uh, from a, another office or just uh, listening in today, uh, we always recommend that you check with your own managing broker uh, before uh, making any kind of decisions uh, transactionally. Uh, every company has different policies, and of course, uh, our scenarios here are to follow uh, the state of Illinois licensing laws uh, completely and fully, uh, but again, there's different interpretations uh, that can happen along the way. So always consult with your managing broker, and your managing broker uh, should also consult with your corporate attorney uh, just to make sure that uh, you're doing everything uh, appropriately uh, as you move forward with your real estate career. Gino, you have a question. Yeah, your first question coming in from Tiffany. Uh, she says, hi, George. Can you please give some examples of client retention gifts you have given over the years? Uh, sure. One of the things that uh, we've uh, been involved with uh, with the company is in planning our uh, marketing strategies over the years. We've tried to uh, incorporate uh, regular uh, connections with our existing clients. Uh, many, many times uh, over that uh, time frame, we've changed up. Uh, we've done some things on a seasonal basis. We've also done, uh, you know, many other promotions to try to uh, thank our clients for all of the uh, the uh, opportunities that they've given us uh, to work with not only with them but also for uh, the referrals uh, that they've sent us. Uh, certainly uh, just a, uh, a nice thank you is probably the best uh, thing that you can do. Uh, a follow-up thank you note is uh, certainly always appropriate. Uh, gifts have some uh, level of uh, limitation uh, with uh, the not only the state uh, of Illinois and uh, some uh, gifting items, but also with the IRS. So again, you always want to comply with whatever uh, your interpretation is of those uh, requirements. Uh, for us, uh, typically we've invited clients to many uh, thank you events uh, over the years. Uh, Day at the Races uh, has been a popular one that we've done in the past. Uh, our movie event uh, has attracted uh, throngs of individual, hopefully uh, based mostly on our invitation, but uh, bottom line, uh, the, the the value of the movie itself uh, and the interest in the movie uh, is always, uh, uh, you know, one of the major factors in uh, in attendance. Yeah, but it's not so much just attendance; it's really uh, extending that opportunity uh, to those clients uh, to participate with us in a community uh, event. Uh, most recently, just within the last couple of weeks, uh, we participated. Uh, in uh, the St. Baldrick's event, well, which was uh, hosted at uh, the site uh, in Park Ridge, uh, Harp and Fiddle, uh, raised uh, over $100,000 of total uh, monies for pediatric cancer and was a, a great success. So we, we jumped in on that, uh, this being our first year in operation at the Park Ridge location, and uh, that worked out well. So uh, just a variety of different things, whatever uh, seems uh, appropriate, seasonal items, uh, great around Christmas time, uh, and just uh, throughout the year, uh, Easter uh, gifts, summer gifts, uh, those types of things have, have all been received uh, very well by uh, our clients o over the years. What, what's an example of something that the IRS would have a problem with? Uh, just on the, from the perspective of us, you want to make sure that, uh, that uh, you are staying within the limitations 
uh, if you decide you're going to use uh, uh, this and write that off as an, uh, uh, as an expense of your business, uh, then there's only a, a certain amount of uh, money that you can write off uh, with the IRS, and you should consult with your accountant uh, on it. Uh, otherwise, uh, no issues. Uh, of course, uh, no incentives uh, can be given to a client uh, for uh, you know a referral. Uh, the license law uh, prohibits uh, an individual uh, from uh, gifting uh, or a so-called gift uh, to an individual or giving them any kind of remuneration or other uh, consideration uh, on that uh, for uh, sending you a referral. So really, uh, a nice thank you is always the, uh, the safest and the most appropriate way to, uh, to handle that, uh, that scenario. Have you ever had a client uh, say, I'll hire you to sell my house, but when you close, I want you to give me cash back? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Gino. Uh, the the uh, scenarios for reimbursement to a client is uh, not an issue uh, these days because uh, it's your own client. So whatever uh, transaction you work out monetarily with them, uh, whether it's in a reduced fee uh, scenario or whether uh, you represent them, say, in a purchase, and then you, uh, you reimburse them a portion of that fee, uh, that's fully uh, permitted under license law. Full disclosure, of course, is important. Uh, you'd have to make sure that uh, a lender, if a lender is involved, uh, there could be a situation where that may impact the transaction. So again, full disclosure uh, is there. But uh, really, when we're talking about a compensation, we're talking about to a third party, uh, to an outsider rather than your own client. So uh, no real significant issues on uh, your own client reimbursement or uh, adjustment. That's just uh, the marketplace uh, scenario and the deal uh, gets made. And then uh, again, you uh, abide by whatever uh, uh, agreement you made with the client and go forward. Again, same thing. Hate to couch it always, but it's always a good thing to uh, double check you know, on any type of uh, arrangement that you might have, again, with your managing broker and also with your attorney to make sure that it stands scrutiny and you don't put yourself in any type of a risk position uh, with that. Fair enough. Um, <clears throat> so we another question here. It's a marketing question. Good. We are in the marketing business, so we always like to have marketing questions. Yes, Gina. So if, you, if an agent has a relationship with a small business in their area, uh, what are some ways that that agent can partner with the business to uh, promote their own business? One of the things that you can do is if you have vendor relationships uh, and uh, one of the uh, the uh, benefits of that is to uh, try to work uh, with individuals that uh, might be able to uh, make recommendations uh, for uh, of your services uh, there, and that could be uh, often the trades are really a good uh, source for uh, that uh, opportunity, uh, and that could be, for example, uh, the, uh, working with the local plumber, the local carpenter, uh, the local electrician, uh, painter, landscaper. These are all great sources because we are in the business of uh, helping people buy homes and selling homes for individuals and. Certainly those other individuals are also in the same business, uh, generally speaking. Uh, so uh, encouraging them uh, to uh, refer your services out is certainly uh, a great uh, approach uh, to the business. And likewise, you can refer uh, those individuals out when you have a need uh, or when the seller has a need for 
that some of my best relationships that I've established over the years have been uh, with the uh, trades uh, people that I happen to work with uh, during the, uh, the home uh, buying process or the home selling process. And one of the things as an experienced agent that you bring with you when you represent a seller or a buyer is that arsenal of different individuals that you've worked with over the years. And you try to always be able to have a, a bag that's full of uh, the answers that are there because you never know uh, what uh, what need is going to arise. I just had a property that I sold and we had an environmental need uh, that arose. So I had to reach out to my uh, environmental uh, individual that I work with on a potential asbestos issue, uh, which turned out to be a non-issue down the road. But only by having that individual available could we address it quickly and then rule it out as a, a potential uh, challenge for uh, the sale of the property. So again, that's just a small uh, or single example there. And uh, the more you have uh, available in your uh, in your bag uh, to be able to reach into, then you're going to be in a position where you can do a better job for your clients. Fair enough. All right, uh, moving along here. Uh, how would you approach a, a FISBO if you don't have any buyers? Um, you were targeting some for sale by owners. How would you actually go about approaching them? Well, there's uh, the for sale by owner is one of the many uh, uh, different target markets that many realtors uh, will look at and uh, approach. And uh, there are pros and cons of uh, trying to work with for sale by owners uh, on it. Uh, one of the uh, one of the good things from working with a for sale by owner is that you get to meet people and you get to try to address their challenges, and it keeps your skills sharp uh, there because they're going to have certain reasons why they're trying to sell for sale by owner. What are those reasons? Uh, they could be a various reasons. Sometimes uh, they don't want to share uh, their information maybe with a broker. Uh, second, uh, sometimes individuals uh, want to be uh, selling their home more in a quiet fashion, so they think that Selling as a for sale by owner might give them a better opportunity to control uh, the relationship uh, there or to make the sale. Uh, oftentimes that for sale by owner has had some level of sales experience uh, along the way, so they may feel that uh, they can do just what the, what the uh, real estate broker does and they don't have to pay for it. Uh, bottom line on it is usually a monetary uh, scenario that the for sale by owner oftentimes uh, thinks they're going to save the commission. Uh, the commission could be you know, 5%, 6% of the total transaction. And in fact, uh, they may be in a position occasionally to be able to save that commission and net more dollars. Uh, the reality, though, is that statistics show, I, I believe, uh, studies that have been done over the years is that uh, over 80 to 90% of the time, the for sale by owner actually nets less dollars uh, in a for sale by owner scenario rather than working with a real estate broker. And, and why is that the case? And I firmly believe uh, in this. Uh, if I had a property to sell and I wasn't uh, ably suited uh, to sell it myself, even though I'm a broker with over 35 years experience in the business, in the past I've had no issues uh, with uh, having additional brokers uh, with certain specialties uh, represent me. And uh, that would be the same scenarios that if you're an attorney, uh, then uh, oftentimes you uh, will hire another attorney uh, to represent you. This uh, puts you really as a broker uh, or the attorney uh, scenario into a position where you're representing uh, your client's uh, interest. You're listening that third party 
broker is listening objectively and can give you better advice. And he's not going to be as tied in uh, to the emotions that might uh, lurk as you uh, are attempting to potentially sell your own property uh, there. Uh, in the for sale by owner scenario, just back to uh, marketing, uh, the, the, if, when you're talking to that for sale by owner, uh, you have to explain the benefits of working with a broker, uh, the benefits of the company that uh, you're working with, uh, and also your own personal benefits that you bring uh, to the table, which will put, again, that broker uh, in a position that they develop a relationship with the client and they uh, eventually have the client's trust and, and they can represent them as they move forward. I think most, most owners who want to list their home themselves forget or overlook the fact that they're still likely going to have to pay out a co-op commission. They think that, have you gone that they think it's going to be, you know, they're not going to have to pay anything? They kind of overlook that fact. Uh, yeah, well, a lot of times they, they see the gross number, which again could be a negotiable. We should always state that commissions are completely negotiable uh, between the parties. That would be between the seller and the brokerage company. Uh, but uh, using an example of, say, 5% to 6% of the transaction, uh, if it was a 6% transaction, they see the, the 6% number, they do their calculations. Uh, $200,000 sale, 6%, $12,000. I can save the $12,000, and I don't have to pay anybody, and I can do it better myself. Uh, so that's, uh, that's the thinking from that perspective. The reality is that uh, oftentimes uh, they will uh, decide to work with a cooperating broker. If they pay the cooperating broker uh, a fee of 25 to 3%, uh, there's uh, half of their uh, theoretical savings uh, that's just gone away. So now your savings might have been cut from $12,000 to $6,000. And uh, now you're in a position, again, probably strategy-wise with the for sale by owner, the most difficult thing uh, that the for sale by owner will encounter uh, along the way. And they usually are out for unless they're really hardcore for sale by owner, usually within a 30-day period, uh, they've pretty much decided that if I can't sell it uh, in a certain period of time, they will eventually list with a broker uh, on it. But the challenge that the for sale by owner has is always a question in the back of their mind, or at least it should be, uh, do I really have the benefits uh, that uh, of full exposure for my property? And in a scenario where we have potentially as many as sixty to 70,000 real estate brokers uh, in our, our MLS, uh, they can have that army of individuals working uh, on their behalf uh, to uh, produce a ready, willing, and able buyer. Uh, or they can be really fairly isolated and try to sell on their own or even the most sophisticated ones uh, possibly post it on one or two uh, sites uh, and get some exposure. But uh, do you really know that you're getting the best buyer you know, that's out there when you're only dealing with a fraction of the potential exposure for the property? So that's probably the largest benefit that we have as brokers, that we can get maximum exposure very quickly for a, uh, for a seller on, uh, on trying to sell their property. Fair enough. All right. Um, what about closing cost credits? Can you explain what those are and you know, how it might affect the offer price? Sure, sure. Uh, closing cost credits, that's a very familiar uh, question. I'm always uh, explaining that to sellers when we sit down. I'm working with buyers uh, on it. Uh, the, from the buyer perspective, let's start there. Uh, the, the buyer uh, may uh, want to make a purchase but have a limited amount of dollars available for a down payment and uh, also for a closing costs. 
uh, available. And that's just part of the necessary evil of purchasing real estate is that it's going to cost some money and someone has to pay for that uh, along the way. In that same example that we just discussed before, say the $200,000 sale, uh, if a buyer uh, works with an FHA purchase, they're going to typically need about 3.5% down, uh, and that's about $7,000 for the down payment. Uh, in addition to that, they're going to have an expense of closing costs, which could be uh, total dollars somewhere in the neighborhood of $5,000 to say $7,000 uh, on it, or around 3% of the, uh, the purchase price. So let's say that buyer then uh, on that $200,000 purchase has great credit uh, or good credit, at least enough to be able to get them over whatever the threshold is. Uh, and then uh, they're in a position where uh, they have that down payment. They have the $7,000, $8,000 in the bank, but uh, and the ability to buy because their jobs are, are uh, solid jobs. Uh, however, at that point, they're still short because they don't have the extra six or $7,000 uh, for the closing costs. Uh, or they might need that money or want to hold on to that money to do some uh, renovations of the property once they get inside. And what's the, the way that we overcome that? The way that we overcome that is that if we're representing the purchaser, then we uh, go to that uh, seller eventually when we uh, prepare an offer on behalf of the purchaser and we ask that seller, hey, uh, can we get uh, a closing cost credit in the amount of X amount of dollars? And again, the typical threshold uh, of around 3%, we ask the seller to contribute $6,000 uh, at the time of closing. And then uh, that, in essence, covers the buyer for their closing costs. Uh, so uh, two options. A uh, buyer has $7,000 uh, under that scenario and gets $6,000 back from the seller at closing. Or the buyer has $13,000 or $14,000 that they need to close the deal. Uh, on an economic basis, purely looking at it, there's a lot more individuals that are out there that have $7,000 than have $14,000. And therefore, that's why um, the closing cost credit has become a very popular tool to get first-time buyers, especially uh, into properties uh, along the way. Now, uh, one of the pitfalls to watch out for, though, in the closing cost credit is uh, to remember that the property must appraise out at the top number. Uh, so the whatever the negotiated price is on it, so let's say it's that $200,000 example, and let's say that the client offers uh, the 200000 and asks for a 3% credit. So the net dollars in that transaction then turn out to be $194,000 net dollars to the seller. Uh, so that's their real money that they're getting because, again, they're subsidizing that purchase uh, by adding in. Uh, or giving at the at the time of the closing uh, to the buyer that uh, that uh, six thousand dollars. So ultimately, uh, the seller's uh, real number on a two hundred thousand dollar offer is one ninety four, and uh, if that's an acceptable offer uh, to the buyer, to the seller, then uh, they move forward uh, with the individual transaction. The property, however, must appraise at that top number again. So uh, if the uh, property is artificially boosted in price to cover the closing cost credit, that may be a trip hazard that you would encounter uh, three or four weeks uh, into the transaction when it actually becomes time uh, for that financing uh, portion of the, uh, the deal to be, uh, to be completed. Fair enough. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just another tool that 
uh, we can use to uh, get the deal done? Absolutely, and it's a very practical tool because it is fully permitted under uh, uh, all uh, lending guidelines. Again, it needs to be fully disclosed uh, that uh, so everyone, including the lender, knows exactly what's going on uh, with the uh, the transaction. And uh, it's it's a become very very commonplace uh, of late as we uh, as we proceed. Uh, with uh, getting our transactions done, with a higher percentage of transactions uh, over the last uh, several years being low down payment transactions. Uh, that's one of the things that's been driving the lower end of the marketplace is to get qualified individuals in, get them the opportunity to own a home uh, early in the game, uh, take advantage of the uh, not only the tax write-offs, but the long-term appreciation uh, that's out there in the marketplace. And uh, certainly this is one of the, the tools that uh, that uh, many successful realtors have used along the way. You just have to make sure, again, that you know the potential pitfalls and that you're working with a real strong lender relationship so that the pre-approval letter uh, that you might have uh, has worked that into the uh, transaction. And no surprises late in the game, all of this done up front. Now you can be on firm ground when you go to the, the seller if you're representing the buyer and you can uh, feel assured that you're going to be able to uh, put together whatever you're putting down on paper. All right, moving along, um, a question here. Good. Sounds seems like a really good response for our first show, uh, Gino. Yeah, it definitely is. Okay. We've got plenty, uh, plenty going on here in the comment section. Um, what is an escalation clause, and when might you use it? Uh, an escalation clause is a clause that's really come into play in the last five to ten years uh, in the marketplace. And in essence, what it says is that well, my, uh, if a broker submits that, they'll say, well, my offer uh, is this amount of uh, dollars. However, I will increase uh, my offer by X amount of dollars over another bid uh, or another offer. Uh, and my client is really interested in the property. So the, uh, there are pluses and minuses with escalation clauses. Some, offers, uh, some offices use them extensively. Other offices use them uh, in a much more limited fashion. Uh, my personal opinion is that I'm uh, obviously uh, you know, old school guy and I've done business uh, without uh, the escalation clause. It probably has its place uh, when you're trying to represent a buyer and get a deal done. Uh, from the listing perspective, as a broker that sees offers that come in that may have escalation clauses, it does create some issues along the way because uh, you could have multiple offers that come in uh, also carrying escalation clauses. And now the scenarios are, uh, well, my offer, I'll uh, pay this amount over the price. Uh, the other party says, I'll pay this amount over the price. It's a moving target sometimes much more difficult to define. It does create potentially some appraisal issues down the road in an overbidding situation because uh, you, you, know, you may commit to someone with an escalation clause and then later the pricing gets uh, somewhat over where real value is and that could create a problem at a later point. So there's some issues then with uh, escalation clauses that can pop up along the way. Uh, they do have uh, they do have their role. One of the challenges that I have with escalation clauses is the privacy aspects uh, of the transaction because many times the escalation clause uh, requires the uh, broker to submit uh, the offer from another party. 
uh, to verify, in fact, so we'll pay more, but you have to prove it to us that you have another contract there. Uh, to me, that creates uh, certain potential privacy issues uh, that could be there because uh, I don't know completely if I have the authorization to release all of that information you know, along the line. So don't want to really brush uh, through that, but always good to check in with your managing broker. On this one, you probably need your corporate attorney's uh, opinion uh, on it to make sure that uh, if you uh, put that in, uh, you're handling it uh, again in the, uh, the proper fashion uh, along the way. Uh, moving along, once again, what is, can you talk about what the role of the title company is in the transaction? Sure. Uh, the title company, uh, as you look at your form contract uh, on it, and when I started in this business, we had, uh, if you can believe it, one-page uh, uh, contracts uh, on it. Today we have, uh, in our 7.0 uh, contract, uh, 13 pages. So buried within those uh, 13 pages, you'll see a reference to uh, title. And it's uh, typically in the state of Illinois, uh, the seller's requirement uh, to provide uh, clear uh, title at the time of the closing. That would be good and merchantable title, which means that they have to be able to deliver title that does not have uh, a um, uh, does not have uh, liens on the property, does not have any judgments, does not have any other uh, challenges that would affect the individual's ability to own this property. And so what the title company does, and again, it's probably a, a good question, and I might be a little more in detail here than, than typical, uh, is uh, as many of my uh, uh, brokers uh, that work in our company know that my uh, background is a legal uh, background and uh, I had uh, legal training and uh, did attend law school and did practice uh, law in the, specifically in the real estate field uh, quite a few years ago, uh, but had the opportunity to represent buyers and sellers uh, in that time frame. So these are the kind of questions that I used to get all the time at the uh, closing table. And uh, on the title side, uh, uh, flipping back to, uh, uh, to your earlier question, uh, ultimately the title company itself will insure that title. So let's say that along the line, uh, the, uh, the title, that there was some defect, that there was a, a fraudulent deed, uh, or that the chain of title uh, going back uh, 25 years uh, where three transactions ago there was some issue. And then someone from the past comes forward and says, we have an issue uh, and we don't believe that we have clear title. And if it's found uh, that it was not uh, conveyed in a proper fashion, then the title company is the one that has to step up and may have to pay off the claim. So you're basically, you're buying insurance just like you'd be buying homeowner's insurance uh, in, event of, in the event of a storm. This would be a storm that would be a storm in the title uh, that was there. On the costs of the uh, of the title insurance, uh, typically the uh, the seller uh, pays the cost because they ha they are insuring that title, uh, and uh, and there are met very. Uh, many title companies, several title companies uh, in Illinois, and they all do uh, a great job in, uh, in, uh, in completing the transaction. Uh, this is where you go for the closing. If you're the buyer, uh, your attorney representing, uh, the attorney representing the seller will provide the clearance for the items that need to be uh, uh, taken off the, uh, the books. Uh, let's say, or uh, removed uh, prior to the closing, they'll pay off the liens and then uh, make sure any judgments that could be out there are taken, uh, taken away. And then eventually the, the buyer gets clean title at that point and they'll get a title insurance policy which insures their title uh, uh, along the way. And they'll pay uh, the costs of insuring their lender. So you might see the lender uh, name uh, pop up on a lender policy. 
So the seller, again, uh, is in a position where they represent uh, or where they pay the costs. Uh, uh, the, the bulk of the costs are paid by the seller, but the buyer has some costs for, for title also. Okay. Pretty thorough explanation, as usual. So uh, how about just one more? Sure. We'll always, we're always open for one more, Gino. All right. Last one. Um, can you talk a little bit about the tax advantages of homeownership? Yes, I can, but I probably will decline to do that because, uh, we again, in a real estate transaction, we always have to know what our role is. And I had just mentioned uh, briefly, uh, you know, in the last question that uh, while I may have legal training, I'm not the attorney typically on a normal transaction. I'm the broker or I'm the managing broker uh, with supervisory uh, control over the brokers that work in our, uh, in our environment, in our company. So the most important thing is to know what your role is. And uh, my role is the real estate broker. Bottom line, I'm putting transactions together, or our brokers are putting transactions together, f uh, representing uh, the buyer and the seller. When we start to get into the question about tax advantages, there are tax advantages, uh, certainly, uh, because there's uh, the ability to uh, deduct a portion of the uh, or deduct the real estate taxes. Now there's a new limit uh, under the most recent legislation with some caps uh, that affect uh, how much of the real estate taxes you can write off. Uh, the interest can still be uh, written off. This would be the mortgage interest that you would pay uh, with some caps also. And for uh, most individuals that are in the very moderate price ranges, 200, 300, 400,000, they're going to get some substantial tax benefits from that. If they itemize their return, uh, they'll be in a position that they can take some adjustments uh, off of their gross income and then reduce that gross income to a lower amount and then pay a lower uh, percentage on their, uh, on their taxes. Uh, ultimately, though, uh, and the reason why I uh, was in a position that I uh, pull back on any tax question. Uh, so each one of the individuals that you represent uh, as an individual uh, broker in the transaction will have their own uh, specific scenarios. So as you become very general uh, in discussion, uh, that's great. But when you get into the specifics, it's always the safest a way to approach it is to ask them to go back to their accountant, uh, the one that prepares their taxes, and make sure that whatever impact this purchase is going to have on them uh, is going to be uh, specific to their needs and not just general in nature. Sometimes there's uh, things that happen uh, along the way and individuals do not get the complete benefit that they were thinking they were going to get and we don't want to put ourselves in a liability position uh, as brokers. So again, uh, there's a tremendous number of great uh, accountants out there, uh, CPAs and other professionals that can specifically render an opinion uh, and they'll be working with that client so they'll be uh, the ones that will be uh, responsible uh, later in uh, preparing that tax return for them. So on the tax question, I'd flip it over there. Very similarly on the legal question, if you're the broker on the transaction and you're asked for your opinion on a legal uh, matter, uh, even though, as I mentioned before, I've got that background, uh, I'm always going to defer to the attorney representing the uh, client. So if it's the buyer, let's let the buyer's attorney uh, render his or her opinion. Let's let the seller's attorney render his or her opinion because they're going to know more of the specifics. And they may also very objectively be pro approaching this uh, question from a, a different perspective than you're looking at as the, the broker in the transaction. So again, hopefully that's 
uh, that's uh, specific enough to make sure that no one puts themselves in a jeopardy position. Risk control is really important, and just knowing what your role is is probably the most significant part of the, uh, the real estate transaction from the, the brokerage perspective. All right, well, I've definitely had enough. You've had enough? I've had enough. Good. Good, good, good. Well, hopefully we'll have the, uh, the opportunity to uh, do this again. And uh, one of the key things that uh, we, again, like to, to do today and uh, ask the managing broker is to uh, be, uh, be around our new uh, agents. And we've uh, had uh, over 25 new uh, individual agents. I know uh, many of them are uh, listening in today. We appreciate uh, you uh, stopping in today. We're always around for your phone call. We'll always give you our opinion. Uh, but in the meantime, this is a, a great way to uh, reach out uh, to all of you uh, with uh, questions. If, if you listen to the show uh, on a regular basis, I'm sure you're, uh, you're going to be picking up some new ideas along the way, and that's our goal in putting this production together. So thanks again for uh, listening today. We, we truly appreciate that.